This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Good afternoon, everybody. My name's Renata Caldor, and it's my great pleasure to introduce um, Ambassador David Donoghue, who is going to give us the closing keynote address for this conference. Ambassador David Donoghue has had a long and varied career in Ireland's Department of Foreign Affairs, having been involved in, among others, the Northern Ireland peace process and the groundbreaking Good Friday Agreement in 1998. He has served as Irish ambassador in Russia, in Germany and Austria, was the Director General of Ireland's Development Cooperation Program from 2001 to 2004, and political director with the responsibility for Ireland's overall foreign policy from 2009 to 2013. From 2013 to 2017, Ambassador Donoghue was the permanent representative of Ireland to the United Nations in New York. He was the co-facilitator with Jordan for the negotiations which produced the New York Declaration for Refugees and Migrants adopted by the United Nations General Assembly in September 2016. Ambassador Donoghue remains actively involved in the follow-up to the New York Declaration and the two global compacts, one on refugees and one on immigration, each of which will be completed in late 2018. Uh, Dr. Uh, Ambassador Donoghue's um, presentation will be the 2018 Global Refugee Compact, an opportunity to revisit the international protection regime. Professor, uh, Ambassador Donoghue, please welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, at the end of a long and extremely satisfying and I think stimulating day, I won't uh, detain you very long. Um, it's uh, partly also because uh, while Madeleine was struggling to uh, get awake um, in the last session, I I'm struggling to stay awake uh, because jet lag, unfortunately, is hitting me uh, a day and a half later at exactly the point I anticipated. So I will endeavour to stay awake and I will try to keep you awake for the, uh, the next few minutes. Thank you to Renata for... Um, uh, the warm introduction indeed to, to Andrew and Renata for the fantastic work they're doing in, in uh, sponsoring the, the, the centre and, and I have to say I, I will go away with a very uh, deep sense of what um, the commitment uh, of the centre is to um, developing these, these crucial issues today. Um, I, as Renata indicated, I, I had a role uh, last year, uh, it, it's only last year, it seems like about five years ago at this stage, but uh, I had a role as the so-called co-facilitator uh, of the negotiations which led to the New York Declaration. Uh, in, in normal speak, that means co-chair. -co I was teamed with Jordan, uh, though for a number of reasons Jordan had uh, limited input. It did, however, secure um, a very uh, significant support in the document for um, the, the concerns of host states, and that was quite proper. Um, the negotiations were exceptionally difficult, I have to say. Uh, it, and I had coincidentally been the co-facilitator for the Sustainable Development Goals 
negotiations the previous year. Um, I won't say that that was a doddle compared to the um, New York Declaration, but certainly it was easier overall. We had a strong sense that uh, we were going to get agreement on a successor set of goals for the, um, the next 15 years. We could not be so sure that the world would agree on uh, the first ever global agreement to cover refugees and migrants. Um, throughout today, we, we've heard, uh, in fact, notably from, from, from Beth, uh, we've heard about the, uh, the process, and I won't uh, take too much time on that. Um, I, I think the New York Declaration, uh, if I may say so, was a reasonably good piece of work. Uh, it, it, um, it did get world leaders uh, to commit to quite strong political messages uh, humanitarian messages. It also in, uh, laid out a, a set of very detailed and comprehensive commitments, as you heard earlier, relating variously to migrants, uh, to refugees, and to both migrants and refugees. And of course, there were the two global compacts. This was a somewhat elaborate structure, um, and perhaps I, I'll just say a quick word about why uh, and how these two, these two global compacts came about. Um, Beth rightly uh, pointed out or suggested earlier on that, um, uh, that there was tacit, a tacit understanding at the beginning of our negotiations that there would be uh, two separate, let's call them annexes or documents relating to refugees and migrants because they are two distinct categories. What was not so clear was uh, the timing and indeed the designation of those two documents. Uh, a problem, uh, quite a major problem arose when the African group of countries, who number 53, announced very late in the day that they were uh, uh, determined that there should be two global compacts appearing together, in other words, simultaneously, and they had in mind August 2016. So they were announcing this on about the 31st of July uh, 2016. So, I, I mean, in, in, in their minds, uh, it would have been conceivable that the two global compacts would be quickly negotiated and presented as two equally important <coughs> annexes to the New York Declaration, or else there would have to be some other approach. What they were really getting at was that there had to be complete parity and equivalence between the two. Why is that? They suspected that, um, or they feared, that many countries from the global north were primarily interested in getting uh, a a document that suited them on refugees and that they were less interested in what might eventually happen uh, in relation to, to migration. And dare I say it, this was before Donald Trump was on the horizon. Uh, so in other words, it, to, to be honest, it was certain pronouncements from the US delegation, and I wouldn't normally name a delegation, uh, which made the Africans fear that there might not never be a global compact on migration. For them, the migration interest was more important than the refugee interest, to be, to be blunt, uh, and they were uh, adamant that both sets of issues had to be treated on a par. So whereas most European and North American countries had come into the negotiations thinking that there would be one annex, uh, probably called Global Compact on uh, Responsibility Sharing for Refugees, um, uh, and then it would take two years to reach the same point on a migration compact. That, in fact, had to be adjusted relatively late in the day so that we would have um, 
a parallel treatment of both, uh, and, and the effect of that would be that both texts would appear, roughly speaking, in the autumn of, uh, or to be precise, in the autumn of 2018, but I'm guessing that it will be around October, November. Uh, I had to, I mean, to be honest, it was I who came up with that plan. I had to do something which would demonstrate to a significant number of member states that their concerns were being taken seriously. Um, the UNHCR and, and many member states uh, did understand the, the negotiating dynamic behind that. Not all member states, I'd have to say. It took a bit of persuading uh, in quarters close to my own, if I can put it like that, that um, this was the right approach. All along it had been understood that an operational plan of some kind would be uh, attached to, the, um, uh, to, to the, 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 what became the New York Declaration. That was the Comprehensive Refugee Response Framework. It was then agreed that we would, in a, this is my own paraphrase, that that would be field tested um, during 2017 and that HCR would lead the process with which you're fully familiar uh, and that would perhaps with a certain amount of tweaking on the basis both of field experience and of um, in, in consultations, and I emphasize consultations with member states, that we would then have a finalized global compact on refugees which would be brought forward in the autumn of 2018. And that is basically what is going to happen. Uh, I, again, taking up a point which Beth mentioned earlier, uh, it is quite correct that uh, we had to drop the reference to responsibility sharing for refugees in the title of the Global Compact. That was not done by, by accident. Uh, the background there was simple enough. And again, I'm touching something with, uh, about which you'll all be uh, familiar in, in broad terms. The concept of responsibility sharing is acceptable to, in effect, the Global North. It's not acceptable to countries such as, uh, you know, I, I mentioned them in no particular order, Russia, China, um, Egypt, uh, various developing countries, they insist on burden sharing. This was perhaps the greatest fault line in what was a difficult negotiation to begin with. Um, and try as I might, or try as we might, uh, it was not possible to find uh, a, a bridging concept. So therefore we ended up with the paragraph which I think Beth quoted earlier today, and which I describe as, uh, which I drafted, and which I describe as an amalgam of uh, responsibility sharing, burden sharing, and also international cooperation, which is taken from the 51 Convention, and which was important to a number of countries. I also added in, originally, the notion of equitable responsibility sharing. That, unfortunately, in the heat of the, of the negotiations, had to be diluted to more equitable, which I don't like for obvious reasons, but it was a, a small price to pay. And that is why you have this slightly odd paragraph. I accept that it's a, it, it's a, it's a, mix, a mixture of everything, but it was what it was necessary in order to get uh, the agreement. I mean, that was perhaps the single most important paragraph in the New York Declaration, and we had to do it that way. Now, of course, we have a number of challenges as we face into the the global compacts, and I'll now come to, to, to those. I'm no longer an ambassador, I'm glad to say. I no longer represent Ireland. I'm now an ordinary citizen, and I'm delighted to be able to work, or to continue to work on some of these issues. So things which I was not able to pursue to uh, a conclusion 
while still the Irish ambassador, I hope that I may now be able to nudge along in, in my new capacity. And one of those is the concept of, uh, of trying to concretize uh, responsibility sharing. We've heard about it in a number of the sessions earlier today. Um, and I did try during the negotiations to get agreement to, I've actually forgotten what it was exactly, but it was something of the lines of uh, a, a mechanism, a concrete mechanism to, uh, to ensure coordination at the outset of a, a refugee crisis. Uh, I tried it, it didn't work because many member states did not want to go beyond the strict terms of the refugee convention. In other words, they were not willing to go into new territory. As that position was taken by them only in the spring, in, this, in July of last year, uh, I, I, I wouldn't be optimistic that much would have changed uh, between then and, we'll say, the next couple of months. Uh, I hope for the sake of um, UNHCR that there has been some um, uh, evolution, but to be honest, we're probably in the same uh, space with many of the, the more skeptical member states. Um, but nevertheless, I, in my private capacity, uh, believe that that's what we have to do, and I hope that the Global Compact on, uh, on Refugees will, uh, will be a context in which we can uh, flesh out uh, that, that concept more clearly than, well, it has to be more clearly than, than uh, we had in the New York Declaration because there was no embellishment of it in the New York Declaration. A second uh, theme is the issue of Again, it was something we've been discussing today. Those uh, people who, um, uh, while technically not qualifying under the uh, Refugee Convention, are nevertheless uh, without protection and need protection. That group, um, uh, who, who can be variously described, are falling between two stools at, at present. That, that is quite clear, and I, I hope uh, that the that either compact could be an opportunity to extend protection towards them. Again, it proved impossible to do that during the negotiations because too many member states were uh, adamant that the, we could not go beyond the strict terms of the, uh, the convention. And I'd have to say that UNHCR were not particularly keen on the idea either. Um, uh, and that was their greatest fear, that, that the negotiations last year would in fact end up destabilizing the, the regime as we know it. Uh, and therefore, they were quite happy with the outcome. And I don't mean that in a cynical sense, but what HCR wanted most of all last year was an operational plan to deal with both present and possible future uh, and likely future refugee crises, they got that in the form of the CRRF. Um, and they also got themselves clearly uh, identified as leading the process uh, towards the Global Compact on Refugees. So, so they were happy campers, if I may say so. Also, IOM were happy campers on the, on the other side um, because they were, it had been a key concern of theirs to be admitted to the UN family. Um, and uh, they overall were, cont were content that for the first time ever, migration issues had been considered at global level in the UN. That was a very important threshold which we, we crossed. Many of the difficulties that I face at co-facilitator related to that very combination of the two 
issues because there were tensions and suspicions between the two sides and I think Beth and others uh, touched on those earlier, earlier today and those suspicions have not gone away. Um, it, if you like, it, it, the, the UN system at the most senior level saw great value in having a summit which would address these two issues together, partly because mixed flows mean that, the, that you have refugees and migrants uh, moving together and facing similar challenges, but uh, partly also because it, it seemed almost like an anomaly that, um, uh, that migrants as such had, uh, uh, had not yet been considered uh, uh, at a UN summit. And I think somebody today made the point that uh, uh, it's inconceivable that there is no treaty. I think it was, uh, um, anyway, so somebody made the point. So the Deputy Secretary General, for example, the previous Deputy Secretary General was very keen that there should be um, a summit dealing with both issues and that there should also be um, uh, a decision relating to IOM. Um, the, the, again, uh, perhaps a detail that you're not familiar with, or maybe not, not everyone is familiar with, with, is that it was actually the US president who first had the idea of a global summit to address both um, uh, migration and, and uh, refugees. And we're not talking about Donald Trump here, as you can, as you can imagine, uh, but, but uh, Barack Obama, I think particularly under the, under the influence of what he was seeing unfolding in Europe in 2015, felt that it would be important to seek global solutions uh, to what is increasingly a global challenge, let's say, um, where he parted company from uh, the, the UN a little bit was that he uh, had in mind that there would be a UN summit, but it wouldn't necessarily extend to all UN member states. Um, he had in mind a sort of a smaller group. Those of us who have worked at the UN before would have realized that was, that was somewhat naive, um, but it was well meant. He, I think he, he felt that uh, you could have a UN summit, which in fact would, would bring together the pledging uh, donor nations. And uh, so to cut a long story short, we had a UN summit on the 19th of September, and on the following day, we had a, UN, a US summit purely on refugees and uh, of a pledging nature. Uh, so the two worked well in a kind of complementary sense for a while it looked like they would actually be competing on the same day, which uh, uh, made my life rather difficult at the beginning. Um, I won't go through all the points which arose today. Um, there were many which uh, I found, found them all of great, of great interest. Uh, I'll pick out just one or two. The IDPs, um, uh, very, very simply, the mandate for the New York Declaration negotiations did not allow IDPs to be discussed at all. And here I would have to say that those countries who regretted that, including the US, uh, frankly missed an opportunity to, uh, to, to um, ensure that IDPs would be, would be within the mandate. Russia and China prevailed uh, in, in, uh, in, in insisting that this was a negotiation only about refugees and and migrants in moving in large movements. So they meant those crossing international borders. IDPs were clearly excluded from the mandate. While my heart was with the Americans, at the same time procedurally, I knew that they hadn't a leg to stand on. And yet we had in a situation where for months on end, um, the US and other delegations 
though not many, um, uh, would have been, or they, they were highlighting the predicament of IDPs, and all I could do was say to them, I agree with you, but uh, you know that the rules don't allow it. That is why even the slight reference we have in the document to something about a reflection is now appropriate on ways of protecting IDPs. That word, a reflection, believe it or not, was a result of about three weeks negotiation because I had to, I was determined to get something in, but the, the, the Russia, China, and many other countries said, you, you have no authority to have any reference to IDPs, and all I could get was a sneaky one like that, which at least might be a hook for further process. And it was Beth who made the point earlier on that, that it, if, the G, if the compacts achieve nothing else, and they will achieve a lot else, they can at least provide hooks to uh, authorize new uh, processes. That, that's the way it works at the UN. And uh, we got one or two of them through the New York Declaration. We got a hook relating to voluntary guidelines about the group I just referred to a moment ago. At the moment, no, no countries are racing to uh, get to work on that because it's, it's, it's a very hot potato. But at least there is something to authorize even a voluntary process. And in the same way, um, uh, there is something to enable us to work on IDPs, but in a different process. The issue of statelessness, uh, it, we, we managed to get something in on that, which would um, allow a process to, to go forward. Um, I think I'm, I, I'm, I'm running out of mental energy at this stage, but I think I'll probably um, uh, hit the main topics. What I would prefer is to actually answer questions. They always uh, um, wake me up, and, and uh, I, I always find them stimulating. So, and I hope that I can uh, flesh out any points that are, are of interest to you. One thing I do remember, um, uh, one of the, I think it was Alan, uh, in his intervention, was talking about uh, diasporas, and I'd have to say, and this is a completely cynical remark, that um, when he was doing that very interesting presentation about uh, uh, India and Israel and so on, and a, a colleague of mine was quoted as having said, uh, yes, we would check with uh, Israel, India, to see what they do, and so on. Absolute rubbish. Uh, we we uh, don't go near any other country when it comes to our diaspora. He had to say that in response to some question, but the reality is that we have... Um, uh, many, many emigrants organizations all over the world, including, I'm sure, here. And uh, we just do things our own way. So we would not be part of any best practice. I mean, it was a very good point he was making, but, and I'm saying this a little bit cynically, um, all we did was we once checked to see whether Israel had a sort of a business organization for Israeli, uh, um, or for, yeah, for, for their, their groups abroad. And, uh, uh, and, we, and we checked with, some, with India, I think, about parliamentary representation. But that was the sum total of um, checking with other countries, because I think the reality is that most countries, in fact, uh, uh, do their own thing about diasporas. So, okay. thank you point. very much. <laughs> thank you. Well, that was very insightful and uh, intriguing. Um, could I ask for questions from the floor? Has anybody uh, got some questions to ask of David? I have to say the United Nations seems an extraordinary place. <laughs> Beth. I wonder if you could make some predictions about where you think the obstacles, stumbling blocks will be in both compacts. Yeah. Uh, I, I'll, I'll take Beth first, if I, if I may. Um, 
Absolutely, the, the most obvious question. But, um, the, first of all, uh, it will be significantly more difficult to bring in exciting new ideas in relation to the Global Compact on Refugees. I say that simply because of the mechanics of it. The HCR, as we know, is, is leading the process. It's no secret that they have a cautious approach. Um, and I, I know that we have both HCR colleagues here and, and Madeline and others were on the screen. Um, but they are taking a literal view of what was agreed in the New York Declaration, which is that we have the CRRF as it stands, and then they are going to have a plan, of, a program of action, and they will also have preambular and concluding comments. And that whole package will be the global compact on, on uh, refugees. Personally, I'm happy with that. I think that, that's a reasonable approach. Um, there, there are various ways in which you could have approached it, but I think that that, that is okay. But the, the, the nature is given that they will not be conducting negotiations, but they will merely be consulting with member states, because that's laid down in the, in the, um, at the New York Declaration. I think that they will have a natural hesitation uh, about some of the more ambitious ideas. I personally would like to see some of the more ambitious ideas pursued because we don't have so many opportunities to, to pursue them. And this is another historic opportunity, etc. But to be realistic, we, there may not be the consensus which at the end of the, of the day, HCR will have to construct. One way or another, they have to deliver a, a, a document uh, by next autumn, as you were saying, Beth, as part of the report which the High Commissioner will deliver. So their hands are a little bit tied, uh, and uh, I, I have great sympathy for them, but um, I, I think uh, I would be pleasantly surprised, let's say, if they were open to all suggestions. As regards the Global Compact on Migration, that it will be easier because there it is a process just like the one which I led with, with my Jordanian colleague. Um, there, Switzerland and Mexico, um, in theory, should be able to admit any ideas. Um, that is to say, in the run-up to when they prepare their, um, their, their first draft, their, their zero draft. But then as that zero draft goes through uh, the works, you know, there will be um, several months during which, in theory, any idea can be uh, entertained. You just have to have consensus for it. Now, one thing that slightly uh, disturbs me is that they have a more elaborate, uh, Switzerland and Mexico, they're obviously my colleagues and I, I know them well, they have a more elaborate um, um, structure than I had coming up to the New York Declaration, namely uh, the Mexico meeting at which they have to uh, take stock of this year's consultations. Um, and and <laughs> you get into a certain amount of uh, theology with, with UN negotiations. Some countries might argue in a few months' time that if, if a certain idea was not mentioned, for example, in Mexico, that it should not then be appearing in the zero draft, etc. There are some constraints, um, and I, I was luckier in that we were able to start, well, we were able to start from Tabula Rasa, but I have to, for others here, I have to say that Beth was highly instrumental in, she was too modest to mention it earlier, but she was highly instrumental in the Secretary General's report, which appeared, um, uh, and with which Karen Abouzaid was also closely associated, but that appeared shortly before our negotiations began. And so I, I took that 
report as basically my marching instructions in the sense that I was trying to build as much consensus as possible for that report. Now, I would never put that to the member states in, in those terms because, believe it or not, what might seem a very obvious point like that would be contested by many countries, developing countries in particular, are traditionally suspicious of any Secretary General's report. Uh, and uh, so if I, if I had said to them, the purpose of our negotiations is to um, try to maximize the support for the Secretary General's report, they would say, not for us it isn't. Uh, so that meant that I had to, as it were, appear to be, um, I, in fact, we were not even allowed to welcome, uh, I'm sure you noticed that, Beth, we, we were in the, in the actual uh, New York Declaration, we, we were only able to note the Secretary General's report. And that, 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 that makes the same point. Incidentally, um, another thing uh, to mention is that the World Humanitarian Summit, which did fantastic work, notably on the issue of strengthening the humanitarian development nexus, could not be mentioned uh, as such in, in the New York Declaration because uh, certain major developing countries pointed out that uh, it, it uh, had not been a state-led process, that there were no agreed conclusions, um, and therefore all of that important material could not be, um, be quoted uh, in, in the New York Declaration. I tried various ways of sneaking it in by taking the label off, but they spotted that straight away. Um, and um, so, uh, that, in case you're wondering why there wasn't a more uh, direct uh, reflection of, of that uh, document, that's why. Another thing was that anything which was a regional agreement, and there are many significant regional agreements, both in relation to refugees and, and migrants, uh, any such regional agreement could not be mentioned because the Russians and Chinas did not uh, uh, recognize the, uh, they, they said it could only, we could only have references to global agreements. I'm given the impression that Russia and China somehow vetoed um, large parts of the agreement, but it's a simple fact of life. You have to get such an agreement through by consensus. That means, although we didn't have to have a head count, we still had to have sufficient confidence that when we, in fact, it was, it, it was just me finally, that, that when I raised the gavel to bring the uh, New York Declaration over the line, I had to be certain that no one country would stand up and, and challenge it. So in effect, every country had a veto, and it's just that Russia and China were louder about their veto than, than others. Uh, but you just have to take all of this uh, into, into account. So to finish on the global combat for migration, I think there is more opportunity to get uh, key uh, improvements and, and, and sort of to get more specific detailed uh, elaboration of what is in the, the New York Declaration. Um, I say opportunity, we still have to get the same member states to agree to put themselves uh, under an obligation in, in those areas. And um, I think it was David earlier on from the Australian Ministry who was making the point that, you know, motherhood and apple pie is perfect. We, we, we've done that. We've been there. Now the global compacts will be all about specific commitments, and I hope they apply to every uh, every government in the world. Anyway. Thank you. We've got one more question. Yes, Guy. First of all, thank you very much indeed, David, and thank you, Beth, too, for giving us these so useful insights into the process of 
negotiating the declaration and uh, also insights into what the future might bring. I have a very specific question, uh, and it relates to the, the issue you've touched on, also very interesting, the responsibility to share uh, burden sharing issue. Um, and I wonder whether, in fact, the division between responsibility sharing and burden sharing is, in fact, is actually ideological. And is the divide so great that one should be, as a, an advocate in this area, careful of what language one uses and opt instead for international cooperation and the responsibility of the international community or something like that? It is that, is that deep, is it? Uh, no, I, I think it is ideological, um, Guy. And, and I, in fact, from recollection, I, I think I just said uh, a sharing of the burden and responsibility. So it's a bit of a cop-out, but, but it, it, it was sufficient to get everybody uh, over the line. When it comes to um, the global compact, I would hope that, we'd be, be, that we could get beyond the semantics of, of these uh, concepts and uh, into a mechanism of some, that's what I would, if I were there still, I would be trying to get into uh, uh, concrete discussion about, about, I mean, there have been ideas about a, a, a refugee response group, and I know that others talk about a possible platform. I mean, there are a number of ideas around. Um, there's also that in, in Oxfam work, which somebody mentioned, uh, uh, which it's not so much a naming and shaming, but although I think that might come into it, but uh, it, it's an attempt to tabulate or to, to provide data about which gov governments are already doing uh, what and, and all of those ideas, I think, would be, if we even got into that territory in the Global Compact, um, I would be very happy. And then the, the next time round, um, we could take it further. But I'm hoping we won't be bogged down in the, the, the ridiculous semantics about uh, what responsibility means and, and, and what, uh, clearly, the Russians and Chinas feel that burden is something which lets them off the hook. They can claim that the burden is for others to carry. Responsibility is, is quite specific. It, makes, it, it implies that we all have to do something. And, uh, but, but that was the fault line. International cooperation, in quotes, was a sort of a, a fallback, but that is so meaningless almost. Uh, so, um, Thank you very much.